You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Operation Parliament pretends to be nothing but a bunch of skids, but they're anything but. EI test gets taken down. Facebook this week faced questions about privacy and ideological bias. Most observers think these questions were largely ducked. Estonia's annual report on security is worth reading no matter where you live. And an accused swatter seems to have learned nothing from his experience. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, lucky April 13th, 2018. Kaspersky describes Operation Parliament, a wide-ranging cyber espionage campaign that since early 2017 has cloaked its activities by pretending to be the Gaza Cyber Gang, a well-known and not well-respected group of skids. The actor behind Operation Parliament appears anything but unsophisticated. The malware it used is still under study, but it does not appear to have any obvious relationship with previously seen attack code. Targets were carefully verified before infection, and Kaspersky says the unidentified operators did just enough to achieve their goals. Most of the organizations targeted were in the Middle East and North Africa, but infections extended to Europe, South Korea, and North America as well. The campaign has slowed since the beginning of 2018, suggesting the spies got what they came for. Proofpoint has successfully sinkholed what they call the oldest-running infection chain, EI test. They say the campaign, active since 2011, seems to have been purely criminal as opposed to state-directed. The large network of compromised servers it used, about 51,000, and its concealment of its command and control infrastructure behind a domain generation algorithm made it unusually resistant to takedown. Proofpoint says that EI tests passed filtered high-quality traffic to threat actors operating exploit kits, and web-based social engineering schemes. Facebook's sessions before Congress are over, with House inquisitors getting higher marks from the media than did their Senate counterparts. Observers think that many of the upper House members exhibited basic misconceptions about Facebook, social media, and indeed the Internet, to question Facebook's CEO Mark Zuckerberg closely. In the House, things were different. He was asked tougher questions about ideological bias and content filtering, and he was also asked by Representative Bobby Rush, a Democrat of Illinois, what the difference was between the way Facebook collects data and the way J. Edgar Hoover used to do it back when he was running the FBI. The difference, Mr. Zuckerberg explained, is that with Facebook, you control the information. He said, quote, You put it there. You can take it down any time. I know of no surveillance operation that gives people that option. End quote. A partisan of the late Mr. Hoover might have answered, No one told you to pick up that phone or attend that church or go to that rally. So there. 
It was, in fairness to Facebook, probably harder to get the FBI circa 1950 to destroy a dossier than it might be to get Facebook to delete your data. It should become easier to get that data deleted as Facebook brings itself into compliance with European data handling regulations, particularly the poignantly named Right to be Forgotten. One of the tougher questions from the House concerned shadow profiles, information Facebook maintains on people who aren't Facebook users. Such profiles include information gleaned on them from third parties who are Facebook users, and they can include, according to an account in Popular Mechanics, quote, all sorts of information that could be used to identify a given person, their name and phone number, email addresses, physical addresses, and so on, end quote. Mr. Zuckerberg dodged the question, professing no familiarity with shadow profiles, but the issue remains an open one. Mr. Zuckerberg answered questions about ideological bias with assurances that the 20,000 content moderators Facebook is hiring, working in partnership with the advanced artificial intelligence it's bringing on board, would restrict things like hate speech and terrorist messaging, being, in his words, things we would all agree on. In general, the House members, particularly Republicans, notably Representatives Fred Upton of Michigan, Joe Barton of Texas, and Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, were unconvinced, trotting out examples of people who were kicked off Facebook for apparently simply holding conservative views. These, Mr. Zuckerberg explained as mistakes that Facebook either had corrected or would correct soon. In general, during the hearings, Facebook was determined to represent itself as a technology firm and not a media company. A media company would be expected to be held accountable for its content, whereas a technology company would generally be thought of as a content-neutral conduit for users' communications. Mr. Zuckerberg did indicate that Facebook remained committed to its advertising-based revenue model and that he expected to come under more regulation in the future. For a foreshadowing of what such regulation might look like, See GDPR. There will be a European court test for the social media giant soon. The Irish High Court has referred a case brought by an Austrian lawyer and privacy activist to the European Court of Justice. Max Schrems brought his case to the Irish Data Commissioner in 2013 because Facebook's European operations are headquartered in Dublin. He alleged that his data was being transferred to U.S. authorities without his permission. It's expected that the European Court of Justice will rule on the matter in about 18 months. We're pleased to announce the 5th Annual Women in Cybersecurity Reception, which this year will be held at the new Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. The event is October 18, 2018, and once again will help leaders from the private sector, academia, and government from across the region and at varying points in the career spectrum connect with one another to strengthen relationships and build new ones. We've got sponsorships available, so to find out more about the event, head to thecyberwire.com slash WCS. We hope to see you there. Those interested in seeing how a small country punches far, far above its weight in cyberspace will find the Estonian Internal Security Service's newly released annual report for 2017 good reading. The chapter Defending the Constitutional Order is particularly worth attention. It consists largely of a well-informed consideration of Russian influence operations, placing them in historical context, and showing the disparate forms they've taken over the past year. If you thought Kremlin trolling was confined to what the Internet Research Agency did to Facebook from under its bridge on the Nyea, think again. 
And finally, in an update to an unusually repellent and tragic criminal case, we see how online disinhibition isn't really even much affected by jail time. Tyler Barris, 25, the Los Angeles man alleged to have made a bogus 911 swatting call that resulted in Wichita, Kansas police shooting a man, has apparently tweeted boasts of his being an e-god and threats to swat social media interlocutors. He's done so from a misconfigured kiosk in the Kansas jail where he's being held pending trial. The kiosk is intended to let inmates make such minor purchases from the jail's commissary as they may need, but not to give them internet access. The sheriff is on it now, and so the world will no longer receive Mr. Barris's philosophical musings. But that he thought those tweets worth sharing argues for a sad disconnection. The swatting incident Mr. Barris is accused of involved a dispute among Call of Duty players. The man who was killed, Andrew Finch, age 28, and father of a small child, was completely uninvolved, innocent, and unarmed. It would seem that some people learn nothing and that their ability to discern the difference between cyberspace, where one respawns after being killed, and reality, where one doesn't, is to say the least, impaired. Mr. Barris, of course, is entitled to the legal presumption of innocence. Mr. Finch, alas, can only be mourned. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, uh, welcome back. Uh, you wanted to discuss today some vulnerabilities when it comes to LTE technology. What can you share today? Um, I wanted to share some recent research coming out of uh, Purdue uh, where they demonstrated a whole series of new attacks against LTE. Now, the majority of them are, are fairly minor. They aren't uh, going to cause major new capabilities for an adversary that they don't, don't already have. But one of the interesting things that the paper pointed out uh, was that the paging channel used in LTE uh, is not authenticated, hmm. uh, which has some interesting uh, potential ramifications. So if, if you'll recall a few months ago, there was the, the big um, uh, emergency alert that went out in Hawaii uh, that threatened uh, an, an incoming missile attack. Yeah. Uh, which clearly got a lot of people concerned about how our emergency alert systems work. In that case, it was it was human and policy error that caused uh, that uh, incorrect alert to be released. Um, however, there are vulnerabilities in the telecommunication system that could lead to someone being able to maliciously spoof such a message. Hmm. And in particular, the researchers from Purdue pointed out that the unauthenticated paging channel would allow a bad actor to locally cause cell phones in a particular region to uh, potentially receive a malicious uh, or faulty uh, emergency alert that obviously could cause cause disruption uh, and, and confusion. Unpack this for us. So, so uh, explain to me, what is the paging channel? Is that separate from, uh, is that a dedicated channel separate from other communications uh, methods to your mobile device? Exactly. So within the LTE uh, protocol standard, uh, there's a variety of different ways that your phone can talk to the tower. Uh, these are different channels that exist uh, within the link between um, between your, your phone and uh, the E-Node B, or the, the base station as it's called. There are the standard channels that you would use for voice and, and data um, as part of just using the cell phone network, but then there's also a variety of control channels that are used by the network to know where your phone is, be able to find your phone if someone calls you, um, things of that nature. Mm. Um, so the paging channel is one of those control channels that's really used to try and just make sure that, let's say, for example, there's an incoming phone call and the network needs to know precisely which tower you're connected to. It can send out a paging message to try and, and find you. That same channel is also used to deliver things like uh, Amber Alerts and another sort of uh, broadcast emergency alerts. And um, like I said, that channel doesn't have any uh, cryptographic protection, which means that anyone could spoof a message uh, in, in that band. So has there uh, been any examples of that out in the wild, or is this, uh, you know, speculative so far? Uh, well, the researchers at Purdue demonstrated in a laboratory that it was possible. Mm. Uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been any uh, actual over-the-air demonstrations of this uh, as part of any kind of uh, active hacker campaign. Um, however, there's a lot of concern, I think, that that, that may happen. So uh, obviously we're seeing hackers get more sophisticated when it comes to uh, telephony-oriented attacks. Uh, for example, with the telephony denial of service attacks that will clog up a, a 911 center's uh, inbound phone lines to prevent them from being able to respond to an emergency. You can imagine similar sorts of disruptions uh, being possible through this through this channel. Um, so one of the things we're doing right now is uh, uh, pushing the the 3GPP, which is the standards body for uh, the the cell phone ecosystem, to uh, add authentication to that channel uh, to prevent attacks like that from being effective in the future. All right, interesting stuff, Dr. Charles Clancy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot.
And joining me once again is Dinah Davis. She heads up codelikeagirl.io. She's also the director of R&D at Arctic Wolf Networks. Dinah, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here. So recently you attended InfoSec World, and uh, we just wanted to touch base about that, what your experience was like. What can you share with us? Yeah, it was really awesome. Um, We were fortunate enough um, to sponsor it from uh, Code Like a Girl's perspective. We did that because they had had a very low number of CFP applications uh, to do their speaker series um, from women. And we wanted to encourage more women to attend the event so that maybe they would consider, um, you know, applying to speak at it next year so they could up the ratio of session speakers. The other awesome part was that they had a 50-50 ratio of keynote speakers uh, based on gender. And uh, one of the most interesting talks actually was was done by by a dog, um, <laughs> not 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 literally a dog, but um, it was all about this dog that helped expose Jared, the subway guy. Oh, yeah. um, so they have they have trained dogs to smell electronics. There's a compound in the chips that the dogs can smell, and hmm. uh, what they do is they go in, in after search warrants and search the house again, um, and then the dogs are often able to find you know tiny things like thumb drives and stuff that often have nefarious stuff on them or ah. child pornography and things like that. And this dog had gone and and helped find key evidence for the Jared the Subway case. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, and then they sh- they showed how the dog did their work, and the dog was a female dog, so that was interesting too. That was you know great. More, more <laughs> good good, quality, yeah, did did they count that as one of the uh, the women speakers <laughs> <laughs> in their stats? No. Okay. Um, good. Good. <laughs> it was it was actually her handler that was a speaker, and he was a guy. Oh uh, um, well. <laughs> but, but that's okay. That's right, okay. Right. With a lot of the women that I speak with, um, they say that while things are getting better. Uh, in the workplace, that a lot of times these conferences are lagging behind in uh, yes. in taking good care of women, of being respectful, and uh, and getting you know speakers lined up and things like that. Uh, what was your sense from InfoSec World? It sounds to me like uh, they're making an effort. To, having been there, do you feel like they're doing a good job? I do think that that conference is is trying to do the best they possibly can. There was a good number of women attendees. I tweeted a lot. I live tweeted the event. And uh, my favorite post was a picture of like a table full of, of women in security watching the keynote speech, the opening keynote speech. And it actually got the was like the top trending tweet with uh, the hashtag InfoSec World 2018 for for most of the week. So that was a great top tweet. The other top tweet that I uh, had last that week was terrible. Basically, there's another video podcaster. And their uh, marketing material has pictures, silhouettes of pinup women on them. And there's a lot of people that defend it. Well, it was came out in the 80s, 90s. It's like their signature. And my opinion on that is, you know, like I walk around and I see that T-shirt and I see tons and tons and tons of people trying to get that T-shirt. And it's degrading. And it's doesn't make me feel comfortable as a professional. So that's not InfoSec World as a conference, really. I mean, that's one of their vendors that came. They don't have all that much control over that. They're trying to do the best they can, right? That was an interesting perspective to me just because we've always had that logo doesn't mean that you it's still appropriate today. And they countered with, oh, yes, but we have one with men and women on it. But 
the woman was like a Playboy pinup and the guy was like a larger coder with a backwards cap on. And I'm like, that's not, that, that's not the same people. That's not the same. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're objectifying the woman and you're not objectifying the guy. That's <laughs> not count. <laughs> Hey, yeah, and there was a, a bit of a social media dust-up about that, people coming oh. at you from both sides, both supporting and challenging you. Yes, for sure. So there was kind of these two tweets from the week, and one was, like, really awesome, and there were still even people, one guy who responded to the table full of women, why is this the top tweet at InfoSec World? Shouldn't it be about the technology? And I'm like, well, yeah, I actually would like it to be about the technology too, but this is so rare that apparently it's getting a top tweet to have a table full of women. The very fact that it stands out. Right, exactly. As soon as it doesn't stand out, it won't be the top tweet. It won't be the thing we're talking about. Hmm. It's a lot of these small things. It's these, you know, tiny little thousand little cuts that the women at conferences see all the time. And that's the stuff we have to start changing. We are looking at the speakers and how many speakers you have that like what the gender ratio is there. Um, and conferences are getting better. It's not just up to conferences to make it welcoming for the women. It's also up to all the vendors that are there. Now, did you uh, have any dialogue with those folks? I imagine you're standing there at their booth and you're looking at their materials and uh, and uh, it raises your hackles. Uh, did you confront them there or how did you handle it? I didn't. Um, and I'll tell you why I didn't. Because they were just marketing people from that company. And there was a lot of people at that booth. And I didn't see how my conversation with them would get me anywhere at that particular booth. Right. This is their company's like logo. The marketing people that are there aren't going to be the ones that can make any kind of change. And it just didn't seem like the right time. Now, maybe I should have gone back later when it wasn't so busy and, and had a conversation. I can accept that. Maybe that would have been a good thing to do. But I didn't think it would really influence any change. So uh, looking back at the conference, uh, what are your recommendations for uh, women who might want to attend a conference like this? Uh, other conferences like RSA, do you have any words of wisdom? Um, I think InfoSec World is fantastic. I highly recommend going as a woman in the field. I found that the ratio of women at the conference was was quite high in comparison to other conferences I've been to. And a lot of their keynotes and panelists were women. So I found it to be a very inclusive conference. Mm. Um, RSA, I am, I am heading there next week. We all know they had a big gaffe at the beginning um, in early March where they had only one keynote speaker who was a woman. It was Monica Lewinsky. And uh, while Monica Lewinsky is an expert in her field of cyberbullying, <laughs> one speaker in their keynote series being a woman of like, you know, 10 or 12 keynotes is not appropriate. Now, since then, they have actually done quite a good job at rectifying that. They have a few really amazing women speaking. One is a Homeland Security uh, lady. One is the founder of Women Who Code. I am looking forward to that, and I have signed up to go to all of those talks to see see what they're like. They shouldn't have had to have, you know, a big media backlash to include those women in their conference in the first place. All right, Dinah Davis from Code Like a Girl and Arctic Wolf Networks. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully we'll cross paths next week at RSA. Yeah, that's exciting. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.